0: Good evening, my name is uh, Emily Madich. Thank you all so much for joining us this evening. On behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it's my pleasure to introduce Father Bill Miss Campbell, a renowned scholar and author and beloved professor and priest at the University of Notre Dame. As you'll notice in a minute, Father Miss Campbell is from Australia. He was educated at the University of Queensland. In 1976, he came to the United States to study at the University of Notre Dame. After completing his doctoral work in history, he returned home to Australia to work in the government. However, as is often the case with so many people, he couldn't stay away from Notre Dame and returned. He went back to enter the priest's formation of the Congregation of the Holy Cross and was ordained in 1988. He has served as the chair of the History Department at Notre Dame and teaches at all levels, from the first-year courses to doctoral seminars. In addition to his responsibilities on the history faculty, he has served as rector and superior of Moreau Seminary. Father Miss Campbell's primary research interests are American foreign policy since World War II and the role of Catholics in the 20th century US foreign relations and political life. He has published numerous articles, essays, and many award-winning books on these topics and is a recipient of two Harry S. Truman Book Awards. In addition to his academic work in history, Father Miss Campbell has notable interest in the areas of Catholic higher education, which he has written about beautifully in the essays found in For Notre Dame, Battling for the Heart and Soul of a Catholic University. Father Miss Campbell explores the place of teaching and research in Catholic universities. He also is unafraid to explore more contentious subjects such as the composition of the faculty, matters of academic freedom, and the controversies that Notre Dame has faced in recent years. I myself first met Father Miss Campbell as an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame. His remarkable sense of humor, Great scholarship and deep love for Our Lady's University and her students is quite remarkable. It's such a joy to have him here with us in Washington tonight. Please help me to welcome Father Bill Miss Campbell.
1: Thank you, Emily.
2: Look, I'm delighted to be here, and I want to thank uh, Emily, of course, uh, and her Father and the Catholic Information Center. Uh, for the invitation to speak here this evening and a special thanks to uh, Emily. I was to come, as some of you might recall, in the spring of uh, this past uh, year and uh, my uh, dear old dad, uh, at the age of 98, uh, died right at that time. So I went to Australia for his funeral and cancelled out. But Emily was uh, gracious to extend a further invitation uh, for me to come. So the book is a little older now than uh, it would have been had I been speaking here at the earlier point. But I am maintaining it is holding up pretty well, pretty well, the themes addressed there. I want to thank all of you. It's not the most uh, attractive of evenings uh, for coming as well. I hope what I might have to say is uh, of some interest. Uh, Of course some of you here whom I have already met have a Notre Dame connection some sort, people who have uh, daughters who teach at Notre Dame, Uh, but uh, I hope what I say might be of interest to folks whether or not you have a specific Notre Dame connection or not. I want to maintain that the Notre Dame story is part of a larger story or should I even say sort of part of a larger struggle or battle about the future of Catholic higher education and uh, there are broad lessons to be learned from the specific Notre Dame story. At least uh, that's what I hope that we might be able to explore uh, in the question time at uh, the end of uh, my talk which uh, I'm going to try and keep somewhere in the range of 40 to 45 minutes. I hope that, that is uh, what you've expected. If anyone begins leaving after 25, I'll, I'll rip to a quick conclusion. <laughs> now, uh, I of course want to speak about Notre Dame, and uh, that's what I tried to do in this collection, as Emily mentioned. It's a uh, a gathering together of pieces written over 20 years. It's a book that asks its readers to reflect upon the ongoing struggle to determine the university's sort of present mission and future course. It's not written just to gather in one place a series of past episodes. I hope it's a contribution to a present debate about the present and future of Notre Dame. My hope that was in presenting these pieces uh, that it would stimulate debate and discussion about the path that Notre Dame is presently on. And it's written out of a conviction that the Catholic identity and mission of Notre Dame have suffered in the past two decades and that they are at some risk but it's also founded on a firm belief that the course is not some sort of inexorable march to secularization. This is an open matter. It's a matter in which the course is still to be determined. There's a struggle dare I say going on at Notre Dame and I might add on other campuses as to whether whether they will be meaningfully Catholic in the years ahead. And uh, I hope that my talk uh, tonight might in some ways encourage you to participate in that uh, uh, debate and discussion in ways I'm sure you already do, but perhaps above and beyond. Now uh, before I complete these uh, preliminaries I want to mention uh, one point. My book uh, is dedicated to uh, the great uh, Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend during much of the period in which I was writing these pieces, Bishop John Darcy, John Michael Darcy, who died just a few short years ago, and two folks who are seated right here, Bill and Mary Dempsey, my treasured friends. And uh, Bill is the uh, inspirer and principal uh, figure with the Sycamore Trust, uh, an alumni group so involved uh, with Notre Dame. And uh, it's a great uh, privilege to have the two of you here, and I thank you publicly, Bill, for all of your amazing labours, and Mary for surrendering Bill's amount of time that he has to commit to those labours in support of Notre Dame. It's been quite a change at Notre Dame to have an organized alumni group who are monitoring the situation there and offering serious comment about uh, the university. So uh, we hope that Bill will keep at it for many years to come, not putting any pressure on you or anything (laughs) like that. Now tonight I want to offer some uh, words in sort of four areas. Rather quickly, just a little focus on the promise of Catholic higher education as to why uh, we're so committed and fighting for what we are. And then a, a sort of summary analysis as to what our contemporary situation is. What is the challenge that we confront? And then some general reflections on how we might respond to that challenge and the principal areas in which we need to respond. Uh, I think these would be applicable to all Catholic campuses, but uh, especially, of course, I'm working from my experience at Notre Dame. And then lastly, some discussion, evaluation of how things are at Notre Dame uh, pretty much right now and uh, addressing the role and contribution of a number of different constituencies at Notre Dame. So uh, Emily give me, well she's uh, just taken off with her camera, I was going to say give me a sign when I'm hitting the 40 minute mark. It's a rather ambitious thing. So I, I do have something of a prepared text and a uh, difficulty for many Australians, I'm sure not uh, father whom I met earlier, but uh, some Australians if they go off their prepared text they're likely to go walk walkabout in the, in the talk <laughs> and it could transform into twice the length of time. So, uh, please excuse me for trying to sort of stay on target here. Now, Pope John Paul II's 1990 Apostolic Constitution, Ex Corde Ecclesiae, many of you would be familiar with it, of course, from the heart of the church envisaged that Catholic universities have an important contribution to make to the church's work. Very important, this integral connection to the church. The Constitution clarifies that all the basic activities of a Catholic university are connected with and in harmony with the evangelizing mission of the church. Research, education, meaning teaching, professional training, and the dialogue with culture, he goes on and gives details of all of those, all have their contribution to make. And Excorde Ecclesiae certainly evokes well the potential of Catholic universities in this broad domain. But there should be no illusions about the difficult challenge that lies before those institutions aiming to fulfill their promise to contribute constructively to the culture. But Catholic institutions should distinguish themselves as places of research and scholarship and of a distinct kind of teaching so that they stand out in the arena of higher education. Catholic universities must seek to understand the whole of reality. All the world is God's creation, and all learning both about God and about the world must be welcomed. The Christian perspective holding to the unity of truth, because it is rooted in God, allows scholars in a Catholic university to seek the truth responsibly and to use the term the truth responsibly as part of their own search for God and it holds the prospect of creating a genuine intellectual community linking the sciences, the humanities, the professions, the arts and so forth. We have a faith that seeks understanding and no area need be ignored but a Catholic university has a special responsibility to pursue certain areas. Reflection upon and the development of what might be termed the Catholic intellectual and artistic tradition is essential and should influence both research and curriculum. If they fulfill their true vocations Catholic universities assuredly will play their part in contributing to the needed renewal of social and political life. And do we need that renewal? They can provide, if you will, the intellectual ballast for engaging the culture. Surely in the current climate, Catholic views on matters such as moral truth, respect for human life, for the dignity of persons, concern for the common good, the value of natural law, responsibilities as well as individual rights, the defense of religious freedom and of the institution of marriage, the utility of the principle of subsidiarity, and the importance of family and community. All of these crucial areas Catholic thought has much to offer. In addition to distinctive research, I want to assert that Catholic universities should manifest a different model of teaching and learning where both the intellectual and moral virtues are witnessed to and valued, where questions of ethics and character are not ignored. Those who graduate from such schools should have an informed view of what is good and be challenged to live a good life, a life in which faith is not sequestered in some private domain. In a Catholic university, neither students nor faculty nor administrators should separate their religious beliefs from their lives as scientists, engineers, artists, lawyers, philosophers, whatever. If we acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ and accept Him as the way and the truth and the life, our lives could hardly be otherwise. We should expect then Catholic institutions to be explicitly engaged in an effort to train a new generation of Catholic leaders for the professions, for society more generally, etc. It is partly through its graduates that the Catholic university or college should seek to engage the culture around it. And uh, I'm proud of so many Notre Dame graduates who do engage the culture in this way. That's why it's so important that we never give up on fighting for our institution because there's so much potential for good that can be done by graduates of our schools. That's the promise. Now, to the analysis of the contemporary situation. Quiet, calm expectation. I wish I could report to you that Catholic higher education in the United States is thriving and fulfilling its true promise and that Notre Dame is the bulwark for the church's effort to engage the culture. But as many of you know, Catholic institutions in the United States provide examples not only of what to do, but also of what not to do. Now I want to make it clear, many good things still occur on Catholic campuses. Let's get that clear. But over the past quarter century or even longer, American Catholic colleges and universities have endured a very challenging period They have not truly fulfilled, certainly the major ones, the mission laid forth in Ex Corde Ecclesiae. During this time, some Catholic institutions have become so in name only. We won't seek to name or identify any of them here tonight. (laughs) Might get a little personal. (laughs) They have largely given up on the effort to maintain a meaningful Catholic identity, pushed along by factors like the quest for prestige, or in some cases, the quest for survival, acceptance by their secular counterparts, and the desire to assert institutional autonomy from any church authority. Sadly, from the perspective provided by the last quarter century, we can see that some schools simply adopted what the wonderful legal scholar Mary Ann Glendon has termed in a somewhat different context, the way of the chameleon, the way of the chameleon. They aim to blend in with the established patterns of secular culture, and they did it so successfully that they became virtually unrecognizable as Catholic universities. They certainly lost any capacity to thoughtfully engage and to influence the culture. Sadly, this process is well advanced on certain campuses and sadly on certain Jesuit campuses, but not all. Now, I don't want to get you depressed. Uh, There have been positive developments and I'll just touch on them briefly including the foundation of a new group of small Catholic liberal arts colleges like Thomas Aquinas and Christendom would be two examples. But they're small. They're usually pretty academically rigorous, but can I emphasize again, they're relatively small, training few students. Another positive sign has been the real renewal of some older Catholic colleges which which had seemed likely to secularize or to simply fold up here the most notable examples are probably Franciscan University in Steubenville, Benedictine University in Atchison, and uh, the University of Dallas, which is uh, in Texas, in case you were wondering. <laughs> These are places with a lively religious life and spirit. There were positive developments on some of the more established Catholic campuses that seem to be drifting from any vigorous expressions of orthodox Catholicism. Most notably, here have been the Catholic Studies programs, which my friend Don Briel is one of the sort of pioneers developing the program at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. These programs provide strong training in Catholic thought and they serve to compensate for the limitations of the broad institution of which they are part. They're sort of like little redoubts. Within a broader institution. But on the older established campuses like Fordham, Boston College, Notre Dame, etc., the situation is much more mixed. There have been positive developments. A real renewal in the theology department at Notre Dame under John Cavadini would be such a positive development that I could point to on the ND campus. Other good things are occurring. The work of the Center for Ethics and Culture, which I've been uh, marginally connected over the years. And at least the issue of increasing secularization was raised and debated on a number of these campuses. But it is a sad reality that none of the major Catholic universities like BC or Notre Dame could rest content and secure in their present circumstance as a Catholic university. Now you may ask, how did this come about with all the advantages in some ways that a place like Notre Dame has? Let me offer here some historical trends identified by a philosopher colleague of mine at Notre Dame, Fred Fredoso. Brad would know him well. Fred offers them to explain the present situation at our school, but I think they have a broader applicability. Perhaps they might serve to sort of stimulate your own thinking. Here's a list, but please note, there's never, ever any decision to forego Catholic identity and mission. It happens through a series of decisions that have a cumulative impact. This is very important to appreciate. And each decision, for the most part, seems sort of defensible, and what difference will it really make? But it's when they begin to mount up that that is when the real troubles begin. That's why every faculty appointment is important, in my view. Here's Fred's list. Speaking about Notre Dame. The university steadily intensifying an often frustrated aspiration to be regarded as a major player in the American educational scene. We want to mix it up with the Ivy Leagues. The concomitant segregation of faith from reason. If you want to mix it with those people, you can't appear too weird and be talking about faith and reason together. The deterioration of the core curriculum into a series of disjointed course distribution requirements, guided by no comprehensive conception of what an educated Catholic should know. This is very important. I should add that Notre Dame has just begun another curriculum review and there's speculation about what will happen to the theology and philosophy uh, requirements at MD. Back to Fred's list. The easy transition from a faculty dominated by progressive Catholics, which I would say was the case when I sort of arrived at Notre Dame in the 1970s into the 80s, to a faculty more and more dominated by people ignorant of the intellectual ramifications of the Catholic faith the concomitant marginalization of faculty who professed allegiance to, or even admiration for, the present-day successors of the apostles. Most folks didn't have a high regard for Bishop Darcy at Notre Dame. I think Fred could be referring to me there. The marginalization, yes, it's okay, let me add, being on the margins. a succession of high-level administrators lacking in a philosophical vision of Catholic higher education and intent on diffusing through the university a pragmatic mentality, at once both bureaucratic and corporate. These on-campus developments, of course, did not occur in a vacuum, as you would well appreciate. They occurred as the advanced societies of the contemporary West increasingly discarded any transcendent sense. And in the United States, there occurred a definite marginalization of religion among the cultural elite, which dominates the national media policy-making, certainly the courts, as we're learning, the entertainment industry, and let us add, the universities. Religion might be tolerated for the masses in the U.S. so long as it was kept suitably privatized from the broad political, social, intellectual realms. The sad and very rapid decline of mainline Protestantism from the 1960s onwards contributed notably to these developments. And of course, there have been our own self-inflicted wounds uh, within the Catholic Church. Uh, My friend, Father Bob Barron, points to, of course, the clergy sexual abuse crisis with all the damage it has done to the church's credibility, and then what uh, Barron calls the uh, emergence in the post-Vatican II period of beige Catholicism that gave up what was distinctive and unique about Catholicism and what resulted was kind of accommodating, hyper-apologetic, somewhat unsure of itself. Uh, this sort of accommodationist approach bears similar characteristics to what happened with mainline Protestantism and while I don't think it's as influential in the broad church as it was 25 years ago it's still very influential on university campuses. So, my analysis is we face a rather tough circumstance. How to respond? In our times, institutions that are not attentive to their Catholic mission will surrender whatever remains of it. And they will become nominally Catholic at best. Some of you might be of the view that such institutions on the downward slide should be given a final push over the proverbial cliff. But I want to encourage you to think differently here tonight to see that educational institutions are crucial vehicles in the shaping of the culture and we should never withdraw from them nor give up without some real fight. This goes for every Catholic institution. And this, of course, is what I would maintain I've tried to be about at Notre Dame. So, how can we reject what is ultimately the rather timid and unimaginative path to secularize and just conform to the reigning model of higher education. I want to offer some recommendations of a rather broad sort. It's by no means a comprehensive list, but without attention to these following four major areas, things assuredly will fall apart. Clear articulation of mission, composition of the faculty, the who teaches area, curriculum, the what is taught area, and finally student life. Quickly to mission. Only when the mission has been successfully embodied in its central components will the identity of a Catholic university be firmly established. It's no point putting out all the mission statements in the world, they're meaningless, unless they actually shape the real experience of the institutions. Read Notre Dame's documents. We have terrific mission statements. They're great. Living out the mission statement is our problem. This is why the leadership of a Catholic university must articulate forcefully the essential and distinctive goals of the university. The vision should capture the loyalty of all the constitutive parts, stakeholders, as some will want to say. Let me just say, at a minimum, the religious character of the institution should not come as a surprise to any who would study or teach in them. Indeed, they should influence the decisions of all from first year students through to endowed pre- chair and so on who would seek to enter the intellectual community that is that university. Authentic Catholic institutions cannot simply pass as like other places except that maybe we're really nice to our students or we treat them as more than a mere number or something like that so this means clarity that in important ways we are linked to the institutional church and indeed are glad precisely because of that Let the Protestant colleges and universities like Duke and Vanderbilt who cut their ties to their founding denominations and secularize quickly thereafter, stand as a warning to us. Moving quickly to faculty. University and college leaders can articulate the vision at length and make assertions about the unity of knowledge and about faith and reason, working in beneficial harmony and all the rest, but it will all come to naught if they have not recruited academic staff, faculty members who share this vision. The faculty is located at the heart of a university. And when the faculty is hostile to the mission of the institution, its attenuation is likely. When a faculty is passion uh, is passive, the mission is likely to be anemic. But when a faculty is committed there's every likelihood that the mission will be fulfilled. Now these observations are so obvious as to be banal, but it's surprising how many Catholic institutions in the United States have ignored these rather common sense insights over the past two decades. Engaged upon a needed effort to improve their academic quality, Catholic universities across most departments increasingly hired in a manner similar to their secular peers. Sizable numbers of scholars joined the faculty ranks who had little or no interest in the religious mission of the institution. Friends, this this is a challenging area because, as many of you know, by and large in U.S. institutions, existing faculty select future colleagues and faculty wish to guard those prerogatives. It can be hard to salvage a department that has passed into the hands of a faculty who have no interest in the broad university mission. But whatever the difficulties, Catholic institutions must seek to employ scholars who support its mission and who can contribute to its distinctive intellectual community. The assessment of a candidate's likely contribution to Catholic mission should have weight in the final appointment decision. Such procedures do not exclude faculty appointments for non-Catholics who are willing to respect and in varying ways contribute to the university's mission. In fact, it is likely that given the present intellectual landscape, a Catholic university will contribute effectively to ecumenism by providing Christian scholars of all traditions and also non-Christian scholars, an opportunity to study in an environment in which serious moral, intellectual questions are asked. In this circumstance, there might be an enhanced sense of what unites our traditions and some bridging of what divides them. When I was chair of the history department in the 1990s, we had a brilliant uh, historian, George Marsden, a well-known Protestant scholar, and he was training a sizable number of evangelical scholars. Marsden had been at Duke previously. He couldn't get his evangelical students admitted to Duke. They wanted sort of liberal Protestants or folks moving beyond liberal Protestantism. And George left there to come to a Catholic school because we gave him some guarantee that we would admit. So uh, I have uh, alums of the history department who are significant figures in the evangelical Protestant world, and by and large, I'm not saying they're saying the rosary or anything like that, but they're thinking better about Catholicism. (laughs) Quickly to uh, curriculum. There is a close relationship between who teaches and what is taught. Obviously, if schools don't recruit faculty who are enthusiastic about the mission, The mission is unlikely to be embodied in the academic curriculum of the institution. If universities cannot say how it is that their curriculum is different from that of a secular university, then they're shortchanging their students. And this needs to go far beyond the usual bromides of we're encouraging volunteer service. It has to be an intellectual project. These elements, volunteer service, are now widespread through American college education. I don't want—I'm not knocking it in any way, uh, but they're hardly distinctive to Catholic education. Surely we must give attention to providing a core curriculum that might provide some sense of what an educated Catholic should know. We do students in Catholic institutions a disservice if the big questions about vocation, about meaning, about the common good are not raised in a challenging way. Surely we should also provide some sense of of the Catholic intellectual tradition and Christian moral vision that will equip students to navigate their way through the challenging contemporary cultural situation. Speaking of navigating through a contemporary cultural situation, let me turn to student life. This area is perhaps more important in the context of places like Notre Dame, where so many students live on or near campus. Nonetheless, we all know that much learning takes place beyond the classroom and the lab. Hopefully there can be real complementarity between academic and student life in a Catholic institution. They should be working in harmony. An astute scholar has noted, if academic and student life remain aloof from one another, if student life fosters habits of self-indulgence, moral relativism, and anti-intellectualism, then it will matter very little what goes on in the classroom. One can hardly disagree with that. Catholic colleges and universities, notably, should draw students into good and constructive ways of living. But the verdict is out on how well they do this. Levels of alcohol abuse and participation in the hookup culture are just as bad on Catholic campuses as on others. Nonetheless, Catholic campuses can provide a vibrant liturgical life such associated activities as retreats, scripture study groups, sacramental preparation, various faith-based service programs, including of course pro-life efforts to address uh, the Broad education of students for, dare we say, life, living. Well, I want to turn now to a sort of final area focusing very much on Notre Dame. I would argue that our school, my school, Notre Dame, has substantial work to do in all four of those areas that I've just outlined in a more general way. Mission, faculty, curriculum, student life. And perhaps we can explore that more in discussion. Indeed, Notre Dame has crucial decisions to make if it is to develop into a truly great and authentic Catholic university. I have argued in the conclusion to this book that this will not be an easy task. The temptations to conform are notable, to conform to the secular model and the perceived costs of not accommodating to the dominant secular educational model can seem significant. I put a series of questions in the conclusion. Let me just mention some of them. I'll give you a sense of the challenges Notre Dame confronts. Will Notre Dame resist worshipping before the golden calf of the US News and World Report rankings with all that implies? Will it adopt as an operating strategy an anxious me-tooism which makes it susceptible to the prevailing and often shallow fads that beset American colleges and universities? Will it seek to appease the forces in American society that aim to diminish and limit the role of the Catholic Church and the significance of its contribution in the public square and to intellectual life? Will it disguise itself as a genuine Catholic university by maintaining the elements of the Catholic neighborhood? This is an image given by Fred Fredoso. The Catholic neighborhood is residential life, campus ministry, etc., cetera, etc, cetera, Mary on the Dome, the basilica, masses going on in the dorms. That's the neighborhood. While allowing the crucial Catholic school, that is the academic heart of the university, to deteriorate and to disappear. Many folks who visit Notre Dame say, "What's your problem? Look at this religiosity that's all around the place." But they're looking, if you will, at the atmosphere, not to knock Mass in the dorms, very important, rather than at what goes on in the intellectual heart of the project. Now, in answering these questions, Notre Dame faces a more fundamental question. It is an age-old one that has been regularly confronted from the time of the ancient Israelites. Who or what will be worshipped Who or what will be worshipped? I mean this quite literally. Will it be the one true God or will it be the Baals of today? False gods and empty idols are all about. Now let me say, let me say, some of you may know I'm an opponent of the stadium expansion project known as the crossroads project and so far as i know there are no plans at the moment to replace our lady atop the dome with a golden calf on top of the crossroads project nonetheless nonetheless when one spends 450 million dollars to get premium seating for the stadium Perhaps that golden calf concoction is being stirred. The waste and excessive spending involved in the project is, for me, a source of great concern. We have money. Do we have to demonstrate it in this gross way? The false gods exert a powerful attraction to the unwary and to those who fail to appreciate what really matters. But if a Catholic university bows down before them, it will assuredly lose its heart and its soul. It will lose its core identity, regardless of what Potemkin structures are erected and maintained to hide that loss. This course cannot be allowed to prevail at Notre Dame. It cannot be a place where Catholicism becomes a sort of veneer over a largely secular project. Notre Dame must unequivocally adopt Ex Corde Ecclesiae as its essential guide. And it must grasp that at a deep level, it operates from the heart of the church. The declaration of autonomy from the church Involved in the Landau Lakes statement, associated with Father Hesberg, a great man, but of course uh, made some significant mistakes. The Landau Lakes approach must be permanently shelved and rejected, and we must affirm our connection to the church. An institution guided by Excorte Ecclesiae will pay close attention to those essential questions involved in the daily operation of universities the what is taught, the who teaches, etc., that I referred to earlier. As it proceeds forward, Notre Dame must devote great attention to key matters concerning the curriculum and the composition of the faculty, something that Bill Dempsey and the Sycamore Trust have tried to uh, indicate crucial importance. We must hire faculty, Catholics and non-Catholics, who are supportive of mission, It seems elementary, but it's so hard to put into practice. Now to pursue this course, Notre Dame will need to enlist the support of key groups. And uh, I know some of you are part of these groups. It will surely require capable leadership that recognizes the dangerous contemporary realities and moves beyond the ostrich-like denial that characterizes much discussion on key matters like faculty hiring. Have we got a problem? No, we don't have a problem, we don't have a problem, is the usual approach of many folks who exercise leadership in the institutions. Of course, in recent days at Notre Dame uh, there have been decisions made which are raising further questions about the direction in which the school may go. I'll just mention them. Some of you may follow matters there, but they're uh, decisions regarding student health insurance, including provision for birth control. The decision of last week to extend same-sex partner benefits in our health insurance program. These matters taken without serious consultation with our local bishop, uh, they're hardly designed to present Notre Dame as being an upholder of church teaching on matters such as marriage and life. They're a quick accommodation to the broad culture, an effort to make us seem, in the case of the same-sex matter, a more gay-friendly campus. But firm leadership at the level of university officers and deans must be accompanied by strong support from the Board of Fellows and the Trustees. The Fellows at Notre Dame, six persons and six Holy Cross priests, bear fiduciary responsibility for the Catholicity of the university. And these Fellows should never relent in their efforts to fulfill that sacred trust. And yet, that Board of Fellows appointed Miss Katie Washington to the Board of Trustees, despite the fact that she had publicly criticized Archbishop O'Brien of Baltimore and publicly criticized the Catholic Church's position on the Obamacare mandate. We have the odd position of appointing a person to our Board of Trustees who has been critical of the very case the the university is trying to make in the courts against the Obama administration. Go figure, my friends, I'm a little concerned at what the government lawyers may make about the seriousness of our case if we appoint trustees holding Ms. Washington's views. Of course, the role of trustees is crucial, and they must be selected for their commitment to Catholic higher education and not merely for what is delicately put as their giving potential. Sadly. Too many trustees, whatever their personal piety and religious commitments, I know a number of them, they're deeply uh, committed to their Catholic faith, but they serve mainly as a rubber stamp for administration decisions. This was evident particularly in the lack of debate about the Crossroads situation. They were simply presented it and before anyone could raise any question or have any discussion, it was accepted. No one, however, feels comfortable to challenge. There's a weird dynamic that operates. Of course, members of the congregation of Holy Cross, my own religious community, Cross and Anchor and all that, must renew their commitment to fulfill our charism as educators in the faith. This is how we claim we are. By and large, religious orders in Catholic universities have not navigated these past decades well. They bear considerable responsibility for how many of them have turned out and uh, Holy Cross bears some considerable responsibility. We're so involved at Notre Dame, we're so committed to Notre Dame and yet there's a strange dynamic going back to the days of Father Hesberg where the order simply defers to the president and no one likes Uh, to challenge uh, the president's uh, decision-making. At the time that uh, the order transferred ownership of the university to the fellows uh, some Holy Cross religious did speak up and they found themselves quickly transferred away from Notre Dame. I think there's a sort of filtering down sort of impact uh, that makes people concerned. I maintain some hope that a new younger generation, sort of JP2 generation CSCs, uh, might emerge, but it's going to take time uh, for that uh, to happen. It's an open question as to whether they will be able to influence things to the good soon enough. Faculty of course are crucial as I've tried to make clear in any institution. Where are we in that crucial domain? It's a mixed picture you know Our Lady still loves Notre Dame because every now and again some faculty leave Notre Dame after complaining bitterly about the place's Catholicity for years and years and they go to other places. That's a big plus. (laughs) Then, a wonderful group, a wonderful group, it's just so heartening, of younger Catholic faculty still attracted they know that it's still at Notre Dame an ongoing place where they can make a contribution some of you may be familiar with Patrick Deneen who left Georgetown nothing to any of the folks involved in Georgetown here but left Georgetown feeling like the game was pretty much up there to come to Notre Dame knowing full well that it wasn't going to be a picnic at Notre Dame but feeling that there was still a battle going on. And uh, other wonderful faculty have been recruited like him. The challenge, however, is how to get more of such faculty. There are departments that are still in play. There are departments where there isn't a lot going on in terms of Catholic mission. I can say more if anyone's interested in question time. Students. Students have been a great strength for us. Folks identify Notre Dame as a place where they want to come to get a Catholic education. I know a number of you are grads here in the room and this is crucial but you cannot expect students who arrive wanting an education to be able to quickly identify all that's wrong and how to rectify it so they have a part to play but trying to recruit students who want to come for what I call the right reasons to get an education of a distinct sort is a crucial task. And there's a little pressure these days for folks just to be sort of accepted. Increasingly, you know, I used to ask students like uh, various folks in the room perhaps, why'd you come to Notre Dame? And they felt they had some almost like spiritual purpose in coming. They wanted a distinct education. But now increasingly you hear I didn't get into Duke, so it was the next best place. And I'm like, oh, thanks a bloody lot. Uh, no, 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 I see it as an evangelical challenge to uh, try and pull those students into the work. But it's a tougher job to pull them into the work. And many of them are sometimes quite resentful uh, about the place being a Catholic place. I don't know what they expected, but uh, some of those manifestations of the neighborhood like meat not being served in the dining halls on Fridays during Lent uh, can be expected to excite uh, some folks on occasion. Um, Anyway, here I want to come to a final and then I'll quickly, I promise, wrap things up. Alumni. At most American universities, alumni play a limited role beyond serving as a source of financial support and attendance at athletic events. Now, Notre Dame is somewhat different. G'day to The alumni matter there. And their love for their alma mater uh, is reflected in their continuing engagement with the university. There's another great strength that Notre Dame has. People care about the place. They're committed to the place. But it's hard for alumni to focus. People have lives, after all. They can't be focused on Notre Dame day in, day out, for crying out loud. Well, there are some people who are focused on Notre Dame football day in, day out, but uh, that's a a special ND Nation category, all of its own. I uh, admit to occasionally checking out the website myself. Um, Anyway. We were robbed last Saturday night. Let me just get that out on the table. What a disgraceful decision by those referees! <laughs> Clearly, they were Protestant. Oh, I'm sorry. I was speaking about I was speaking about ecumenism beforehand. Let me do. Let me withdraw that remark. Anyway, alumni, it cannot be simply an episodic, you know, engagement. So the Obama uh, speech stirs folks up, and people get enraged but then it just fades away. It can't be like that uh, because administrations are trained to handle just particular episodes. They have damage control, they have public relations teams that are skillful at the spin. There needs to be constant and informed engagement. I say this for every Catholic campus. In this regard, the work of Sycamore Trust to inform alumni of developments on campus has been invaluable and those who truly love Notre Dame will call it to be its best self and fully support the renewal of its Catholic character and make clear that that is what they want. So these essential stakeholders you can see it's a mixed it's a mixed picture is what I'm uh, giving to you along with other friends and supporters of Notre Dame must all collaborate to assure that the university rejects the secularist temptation and charts a less travel path. It is a less travel path, it's a more difficult path so that it may lead a renaissance in Catholic higher education in the United States. This is what I would say is Notre Dame's great obligation. A major course correction is needed. So it's a challenging prospect, but Notre Dame is a place that has faced challenges in the past and emerged even stronger. We can go back to the 19th century. Damaging fires, a terrible cholera outbreak, a series of financial crises couldn't break Father Soren's iron will and deep faith. The more subtle but equally dangerous trials of our own time Trials that test not the physical existence but rather the essential mission of the university. These trials must not defeat those committed to this special venture in Catholic education. Some measure of Soren's will and faith is still needed among those who will fight to uphold and enhance The Catholic character of the university. But dear friends, we must not be afraid. Instead, we must follow the dictum of the legendary teacher, Frank O'Malley, who said, let's be about the work, the work. This is a purpose worth fighting and sacrificing for today and in the years ahead. We must do it for Notre Dame and for her son. I see your presence here tonight as an indication of your willingness uh, to do so. May God bless each one of you. Thank you.
1: And, uh, I'll
2: be glad to try and respond to any questions that if, you may have. If you
0: have a question, I'll be bringing around a microphone.
2: Oh, Emily has a mic
1: there for you. Yeah?
0: If, this is, if this is frivolous,
1: just say so, don't answer Yeah. But if uh, JR told me
2: Look, that's not frivolous. I know your dear daughter teaches a class on Tolkien, so <laughs> I'm going to be frivolous in my response and say you should ask her that question. So, uh, well, I I think one of the things he would say is sometimes huge responsibilities are entrusted to folks who you wouldn't have originally picked to carry out certain duties and uh, that uh, if you were analyzing Notre Dame uh, you would say gee certain forces seem to be winning uh, and you can sometimes get a little discouraged uh, I like to uh, just take a look at the Lord of the Rings movies when I do get a little discouraged, because it's a kind of um, encouragement to keep at the task that has been assigned to you. I sometimes have given to quoting Frodo and Sam continuing on on the mission, even when the odds seem against them, and uh, you know this. is over playing my own limited role at Notre Dame. But uh, some folks get a little discouraged. Like some of my colleagues say, "Ah, oh, it's all done for. It's just going to aggressively go down. Apologies to the Georgetown grads here, but, you know, a sort of Georgetownization path. Um, but I don't concede that for a moment. And I say we've got to stay in, and God and Our Lady are going to, somehow or other, take care of us. Yes.
3: Yeah. Um, one of the things I've encountered in talking about the various things that occur is a, a certain sense of frustration at being unpractical. And yeah. I think you and other times where right, I've I will never have enough money to
2: make a difference. <laughs> oh, that's too um, bad because that's the big way you really make <laughs> an impact. Would you really start working on your investment portfolio? Uh, yeah, no, like, I'll make no seriously. You no, me. seriously, back to back to you. But uh, but it's
3: it's that, what what does one do practically? I mean, it, awareness is, is yeah. massive and, and I'm certainly familiar with you know, Singapore Trust and what it does. I can. Yeah. My letter is going to be in a pile that
2: may never get across anyone important's desk. The board of fellows, what do they do? You know, yeah. I think because of the layers of the administration, it's very. What, what do you do practically? Yeah, I I don't want you to as quickly dismiss your expressing your views to the administration. I know everyone can think, on oh, my letter. What is one letter going to do? But I'm telling you, if they start to get a series of letters about matters, it registers. Now, uh, our present uh, vice president for communication was previously working for the New York Police Department, and uh, he is pretty good at sort of hosing down an issue, keeping it under wraps and control. So you you have to let folks know in a variety of contexts. So there's a Universal Notre Dame night, if there's the Notre Dame club, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you raise your concerns about a particular decision uh, or the broad drift of the institution. Constantly bring it up. I know it can seem tiresome, that's why I say most alumni are pretty, you know, of American colleges and universities pretty sort of ineffective because they're not well organized but a relatively young person like yourself to be involved say with Sycamore uh, and uh, to keep up with what's going on I think is very important. And uh, write directly to Father Jenkins, that's the best person to write to. Now it's not clear that he's going to, if if you write president at nd.edu that goes to the staff, but uh, get his own email address (laughs) John Jenkins at nd.edu, uh, <laughs> right, and uh, the, he uh, he usually cuts and pastes from the from the staff, but you know that goes to him uh, directly, and I think it has an impact. Universities operate on where you know sort of their political institutions in some way, where they feel pressure is and uh, I think some folks at Notre Dame say say, if we were to defend and uphold traditional marriage at Notre Dame it will make us seem a little sort of too orthodoxy, too out of the mainstream so that's why the quick decision on the extension of benefits uh, and most folks see that and you sort of say oh what can you do Um, but it would be helpful if folks raised a question about what are we doing to uphold church teaching on marriage Uh, that would be beneficial so um, also uh, you know you're probably getting the annual request Uh, you have to give the assigned amount to get at your application for the football tickets I concede that I concede that but if you are going to give anything more than that to try and channel donations to parts of the university that are working hard to elevate the catholic mission of the place so I was always encouraging folks to give they were giving to a student group to give to the Right to Life Club or to the Edith Stein project or something of that sort, or if they're giving to uh, something like the Centre for Ethics and Culture and so on, that are uh, sort of uh, places within the institution that are really boosting. So they would be a couple making your voice heard even though you think it's not going to be listened to and not giving up, you know, just when you get the standard letter back, thank you for sharing your views, we will take them into account. into the circular file, um, and how you might uh, direct even modest contributions to the university. would be some. Mary? One oh, of my dear former students. Uh,
0: you mentioned that the curriculum is going to be... Yeah, yeah. Is there any push to switch the requirements for theology from foundations of biblical?
2: Seems a little bit more applicable to a college student's life. Yeah, that's a. I have not heard of a specific move in that regard. What has John Cavadini more worked up, Mary, is his worry that the theology requirement might be reduced or watered down so that some course, uh, maybe a sociology of religion or a. a uh, history course, religious history course, might count. And John, of course, wants theology and people to think uh, not in a kind of religious studies mode that is just something you study, but a theolo- the- theological mode where this is engaging God. Uh, but uh, I, I have you know, long felt that it would be beneficial to us to have a, a slight rethink of the foundations because it depends so much who teaches that class how much people get from it and some folks after completing that the, the initial class for those of you not familiar is sort of a basic race through the Bible it, up to a little bit of patristics as well if folks get that far and uh, some of the classes are taught by Dio grad students uh, who pretty much just use the historical critical method you know this is this text this is what you're supposed to get from it let's go on there's no sense it's the word of god that's supposed to stir your faith take you to a more adult understanding of your faith Uh, so sometimes can finish that course and almost be resentful that they've had to take it they're not enriched Um, now That experience might, of course, occur for some folks who have to take a course in Catholic morality as well. But uh, I'd be prepared to risk it. Uh, Perhaps you should add a course in Catholic morality. Why don't you write a letter to Father Jenkins and suggest (laughs) it, Mary? (laughs) Yes.
1: <clears throat> as a graduate of both uh, Georgetown and Notre Dame,
2: yeah. Sorry, I sh- I had resolved not to make any comment about no, Georgetown. I'd, I'd, I want to apologize. For I that. would
1: only say that uh, I'm not giving up. as no. are, are many. Yeah, uh, at Georgetown, and it yeah. is about it is a struggle. Yeah. Question I have for you about Notre Dame's business school, the Mendoza School. Yeah. How closely are they following the mission? Obviously, they've been able to achieve extraordinary heights as far as U.S. News World reports uh, unprecedented number of times, and especially focusing on core ethics in every one of their courses and throughout their faculty. How well are the other, well, first of all, I'd like your observations about how well they're doing in yeah. terms of Catholic mission and the attitudes of other departments toward that.
2: Yes, uh, you might be uh, aware that there's um, a huge pressure on the Mendoza College of Business because of the U.S. News ranking and also because of parental concerns about will students get jobs at the end of their undergraduate. Numbers have been going there such that for the first time there's going to be a cap on the number of students who can go to Mendoza. Uh, so there are all kinds of pressures on Mendoza, just number-wise. But Carolyn Wu, the previous dean, did a reasonable job and she took very seriously Catholic mission, but tried to infuse this uh, Christian ethical dimension through the school. It was supposed to be taught both in an ethics class and you know, in various other classes. Um, this probably plays to to sort of mixed reviews how effectively it's taught outside of the ethics class. If you're teaching uh, certain classes uh, I don't think they're stopping and saying now what does Catholic social teaching have to say to us about this. Nonetheless I I feel better about uh, Mendoza College of Business than I do about the College of Arts and Letters. The number of Catholic faculty is certainly a majority And they're a lot of wonderful folk, you know, they're sort of uh, uh, just in their personal lives, models for their students. So, uh, you know, room for uh, improvement, no doubt, but that uh, program uh, is, you know, has some strengths. I would say that that U.S. News and World Report ranking is something of a mixed blessing because students see number one ranked business school and that's a basis that increasing numbers of students are selecting Notre Dame for that purpose as opposed to Catholic University get a broader Catholic education and you have a number of students who come wanting their business education and not wanting to be bothered with the theology requirements and philosophy requirements and so on, they they want to hit investment banking as soon as they can. Um, so that's a slightly rambling uh, response, but uh, the college is trying to do something to indicate that it's you know part of a Catholic university. But of course, the business guys say hey, our students are taking all those humanities classes. That's supposed to be helping them as well, as indeed it is supposed to be helping them. So uh, what, what's your own take on on this matter? You were going to go on and say a bit more about it.
1: I actually hold it up as a, I hold it up as a beacon for... Many people at uh, Georgetown get tired of hearing me talk about yeah. Notre Dame. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I... I thought it was a very positive. In fact, I thought the the ethics yeah. emphasis was in fact a part of many of the classes. Yes,
2: well, that's the hope. It's supposed to be part of
1: every class. And it was think the thinking that that was also part of the a significant new component in the evaluation of why they continued to be on oh, top of the U.S. News and World Report.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. But I think uh, you know the marker. As against other places, although even now, many places are trying, having seen that Notre Dame benefited from the ethics through the curriculum approach, they're attempting to replicate it. Uh, but uh, we're still maintaining this rating. That's exactly of the, it, yeah. yeah. Ethics Absolutely.
3: Ethics for ethics is, is a wonderful thing. Yeah.
2: But, but yeah. we have the true Peter Singer is teaching ethics up at uh, Princeton. <laughs> Makes right. you a little worried about ethics, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry, to this lady first, and then we'll come, come back to this man.
4: Uh, Father, I have a crass all right, I, I have a crass marketing question. Okay. Um, some of those colleges you mentioned that are faithfully Catholic. Yeah. Were founded specifically because Notre Dame fell off the, the pedestal. Yes. Now,
2: well, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas was founded by people who had PhDs from Notre Dame. Right,
4: and yeah. and and uh, Christendom College was founded by people who said very very plainly, we're doing this because yeah. there is no longer Catholic higher education yeah. in the United States. So, yeah. suppose Notre Dame does become Catholic. Yeah. Can those institutions coexist? Is oh, there a big enough market? Abs- is there is, is there even a big enough market in the United States for a big university like Notre Dame to sustain itself with students who want a thoroughly Catholic education?
2: Uh, look, I, I don't want to qu- just quickly reassure you. Yes, you know that there there is, because there is a kind of pressure at work. I see it in many uh, middle, upper middle-class uh, Catholic families, the value they put on the Catholic education. Uh, I saw it with a family I know well from Boston. Their son got into Notre Dame and he got into Princeton. And they reassured themselves Hey, Robbie George is at Princeton. There's a lovely Catholic uh, center at Princeton. He'll be fine. Off he went to Princeton. That said, that said, uh, so, you know, there are tensions, but Notre Dame gets 20,000 applicants for 2,000 spots. Uh, We feel good the more people we reject that helps you that helps you in the US news and world rankings that shows how select a school you are but it also says to me that's a heck of a lot of students who are at least somewhat interested in what Notre Dame is offering now maybe many of those don't know too much about Catholic higher education but as long as there's a Catholic elementary and secondary school system, and as long as there are committed Catholic parents willing to pay <laughs> the, significant, <laughs> the significant tuition involved, I have no doubt that the numbers will come. For the most part, the newer schools, like I visited Thomas Aquinas, I'm an admirer of the kind of education provided there, but it's very much the seminar style. They don't want to get much bigger than five or 600 students. They're, they're at peace with that. They want to get you know be better, sort of, but not necessarily more numerous. Uh, so I think there's definitely um, a market. And when you look at a place like, uh, I, I gave a talk at Benedictine out in Atchison uh, a couple of years back. That school was just about to collapse. It had folded. And the same with Steubenville. I'm not as familiar with Steubenville, but I was told the history of Benedictine, they were down to about four or 500 students. Emphasizing Catholic mission has given them something distinctive. I do think that over the next decade or two, uh, quite a number of liberal arts colleges are going to face very significant challenge. There is, there is going to be closures of institutions. I think the ones that will survive are the ones that have some sort of distinct identity that they can appeal to parents to send their students. And that identity must be both on the intellectual level and the student life level. So uh, I, I wish I could tell you that uh, Christendom and Thomas Aquinas were going to be in real trouble because Notre Dame the pendulum was going to swing back so quickly that uh, all the uh, super Orthodox would want to come to Notre Dame I don't think that's likely to happen in the short term we're hoping for it in the longer term yes
5: By way of background, I worked for Patrick and at Georgetown, and also spent a year at TAC. But oh yeah, um, I wonder if we could put this conversation in the context of the new evangelization. Yeah, um, the recently beatified Paul VI famously said that modern man listens more readily—I'm paraphrasing—more readily to witnesses yeah. and teachers. Yeah. and And um, I guess I'm wondering if if the core issue is kind of a crisis of. Of saints, and it's it's all well and good to have good governance and good um, faculty my curriculum and everything, but yeah. how many people believe that their vocation um, is to be a saint at in, in a university setting? And and the challenge that comes with our in our popular imagination, sainthood is not the intellectual life is kind of out there. It's not service work, it's not. uh, There are no amazing figures who by sheer dint of their personality can reform something. There are exceptions like Robbie George of Princeton or Father Scanlon, but can a teacher really solve the crisis?
2: Uh, I wouldn't say that any one person but a group of folks definitely, definitely can make a substantial difference. I would say it's evident in the contribution that Patrick has already made at Notre Dame during his time there and the influence he is having on students and what they will do with their lives and so forth. I, I agree with you about uh, you know our, our task is to help people live out their Christian vocation, their uh, path to holiness of life. That's that's what we should be about. Uh, but I, I don't want to rule the intellectual life out from that. How one pursues that life can be a quest. I mean, Cardinal Newman uh, could be an exemplar for us of uh, someone who was engaged in uh, major questions, but essentially a great intellectual. Um, so. Uh, there are many paths, many paths to sainthood. And uh, universities, Catholic universities, should be training grounds for folks to go out into the world to do any number of tasks. Uh, so, good engineers and good business people and great teachers and so on and so on and so on. So, I see them as kind of incubators of saints that uh, folks come to us for the most part coming from high school. I know that will change and it's different for some institutions to have more mature age students, but for the most part they come and they're maturing with us into adulthood and in the ideal, finding their calling that they're going to pursue in life that will be their path to heaven, their response to follow the Lord as a faith-filled disciple. So I I could only agree with you that, uh, you know, we we want to prepare saints. Um, I'm not sure that we'll be able to get that into Notre Dame's curriculum review. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we might have to work a little more subtly. Uh, But that would be the object. That would be the object. I think it goes back to Mary's point about uh, a course in Christian morality: How to live a good life. Yes, yeah. Good to see you.
3: <laughs> I have a question for you. Uh, less in your role as a as a professor, but more in your role as a priest and yeah. and and your pastoral role in your in your ministry. You've been there since 1980, um, <laughs> or excuse me, 1988. Um, yeah. First started as a priest. Yeah. The, the, um, in terms of the student life, you talked about sort of the hookup culture and, and can you, have you seen any, any sort of changes over the years um, in the sense that uh, in, in the modern culture and, and what's going on in the college campuses, there's starting to be a realization that this is, this is leading to higher levels of depression yeah. and um, drug abuse um, and that, that, that the real sufferers of this are the young women and that for the men, it's just increased uh, access to pornography and that the whole thing is just becoming more and more destructive between the men and the women. And sort of in your role as a priest, have you, you, know, you, you get access to problems in a way that many of us don't. Have you seen any change? Is this affecting the campus there? Or are you seeing it there? you could tell us about that.
4: Yeah.
2: Look, that could be an, another talk, really. Um, of course uh, pornography is at sort of epidemic levels throughout well throughout society I guess but uh, certainly on college campuses so that's a uh, a major problem and it has an impact on the way men and women relate to each other. I still would hold that the abuse of alcohol is the source of many of the sort of um, major manifestations of problems from vandalism and so on in men's dorms through to sexual assault and so on. Um, It's when folks are uh, drunk and um, that uh, many of the problems uh, occur. So you know there are sizable issues and problems but a, a trend that I would identify is increasing numbers mass attendance seems to be down even though the public relations spin you know is still how many masses are being said on campus etc mass attendance is somewhat down and I think there's an increasing number of students who come uh, from homes in which you know they can tick the box that they're Catholic but it simply doesn't mean that much and increasing numbers of students who come from uh, circumstances where uh, you know the divorce culture they're they're the product of it Um, it's, it's less likely than perhaps in a day 25 years ago where You know, there were intact families, mum and dad and the kids, that kind of thing. It's just the way the broader society is. It's reflected Notre Dame's probably in a better circumstance than many places, would be my guess. Uh, But um, that dynamic is is very real. Uh, The number of uh, under... You know, the counselling centre at Notre Dame uh, used to be a place where uh it's mainly poor grad students who were having trouble getting you know that writer's block to get through a chapter on the dissertation or they were suffering stress and so on they tended to predominate um, but increasingly uh sizable numbers of undergrads we want folks to avail themselves of a counseling center rather than so I'm not you know complaining about this fact that uh, folks have difficulties and problems uh, they should avail themselves but there's been a much greater increase but for the most part I would say these are broader societal things that Notre Dame has to deal with just as any other place. Now uh, a critic might say you know how well are you dealing with them but uh, I can tell you, dealing with the pornography epidemic is a, is a tough thing. Um, you know, should we put some sorts of controls on things? This goes against notions of you know, oh, well, academic freedom and so on and so on. But uh, yeah, there's considerable. You you raise a whole range of questions there, Dave. So um I still think our method of, of having rectors in the uh, residence halls is a pretty good approach and folks still have a deep commitment to their residence hall but it is becoming more difficult to recruit folks who will stay at that work for more than five years this, particularly because there are so few religious women any more who are, you know, available to do that kind of work. Uh, you get a succession of relatively young women who do it for two or three years and then move on. I don't blame them. There's not a particularly attractive job being up at 2 or 3 a.m. on a Friday and a Saturday night, that kind of thing. But um, how to get folks who will keep our ministerial approach to student life as opposed to student management. Uh, if we go down the student management path, that's a that's a sad. That'll be a sad day for us. We're not we're not there yet. The fact that the order still, we we've got some young CSCs involved still in the dorms, and hopefully we'll be able to recruit more because that's where priests. I, I like to think you know priests in the classroom have some impact, but priests in the dorms connect with 250 young men. In very important ways and see them at very crucial times in their lives and so on. So, I hope we can sustain that effort to address some of those things that you raise.
0: We have time for one more question.
2: Yeah. Oh, sorry. With
3: Catholic News Agency.
2: Um, yeah, speak up a little, spot
3: Sure. Uh, with Catholic News Agency, yeah, you had mentioned the amount of money that was being spent on the Crossroads Project, hundred yeah. million, yeah. Um, what do you believe that that money, as a truly Catholic university, how Notre Dame could better spend that money?
2: Yeah, well, I've, I've, uh, I'll be glad to send you a couple of pieces that I've written uh, on the matter, trying to, trying to address this. For a start, uh, I think we. Uh, are probably overbuilding. Uh, there's uh, a kind of, sort of like an arms race mentality. You keep putting up it's, it's a lot easier to do, by the way, is to raise money and build buildings than it is to address curriculum. Uh, you don't have to involve the faculty as much, and so you just get wealthy donors and they put it up. Or in the case of Crossroads, of course, they uh, have a business model where they're going to sell the premium seating, of course that seems to be the driver behind this project i find that unseemly that a catholic school is building this premium seating you know where the uh, white coated waiters are going to serve champagne and cucumber sandwiches to the uh, to the patricians up above while all the poor plebs down in the uh, 80,000 seat stadium uh, you know will just have to go with their regular old hot dog. Um, it, it doesn't, it, it, it offends notions which can be exaggerated, but of a Notre Dame family. It offends those notions. For what we get from Crossroads, uh, student center, an academic space for uh, anthropology and psychology, um, a building for sacred music. Someone had a sense of humour, sticking sacred music at the south end of a football stadium. We're going to we're going to eliminate the band and just have big organ recitals during half time. But uh, for those buildings, for those buildings, they could be constructed for significantly less cost. Significantly less cost. My big objection, though, is the whole notion that the football stadium is going to be the center and crossroads of the campus. This offends my Catholic sensibility. Notre Dame's campus is designed to have it radiate out from the church and the dome. And here they're reorienting such that the church and the dome will be on the edge of the campus essentially on the edge. If Crossroads is the heart of the campus, etc. So, uh, what monies? From a pure businessy sense, uh, this is the argument they're making of course, Crossroads will sell, you know, to you it's slightly unseemly but if, uh, if anyone is a devoted football fan if you have a million dollars to make a capital gift and hundred thousand dollars a year you can get eight tickets and as much champagne as you want to drink for season tickets. A hundred thousand dollars a year and a million bucks for a capital gift. I think there are a lot of Notre Dame donors who would give money to academic buildings, they have in the past, why wouldn't they in the future, who could construct the same academic and social space for half the cost, and without reorienting the whole design of the campus. Uh, Those monies could be spent in far better ways. And we should be, particularly in the age of Pope Francis and simplicity, etc., we perhaps should be modeling that rather than this uh, sort of excessive... I I find the buildings particularly ugly as well, so that's another complaint. Uh, is it coming across that I don't like the Crossroads Project? Uh, yeah, yeah, could I get that out on the table? I hope that's of some help. So it's not, not as if you know money could be saved and could be spent on some worthy purpose. It's that too much money is being spent on this. And it's just bad for our reputation and for, for what we're modeling to the students about what's important in life.
0: Thank you so much, Father. Oh, yeah.
1: Thank you. Thank
2: you very much.